All right, uh, this week, the reading is Exodus 33, 1-17. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the, of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say it to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? And I, your people, is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, and I, your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by, by now. Henry Grappi, crushing those uh, Old Testament words. Nice work. Thanks, dude. Um, guys, thanks so much for being here. My name is John Trapp. It's great to have you all here. Uh, I'm the campus minister here for RUF at Texas. If uh, this is your first time, we're especially glad to have you here. Uh, I want to welcome you. Um, just to tell you a little bit about RUF. At RUF, we believe that what the Bible says is that um, you can't be so good to, beyond, to be beyond the need of God's grace, but also you can't be so bad as to be beyond the reach of God's grace. And so every week what we do is we gather around and we see what the Bible has to say about sinners. Because we believe that in order to be a Christian, the, the first thing you have to do is to admit that you need help. So if you're here and this is like, feels kind of religious and you're like, I don't, these people all seem to have their act together. We don't. We don't. Um, some of us even leave our cell phone ringers on very rudely. I'm just kidding. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> So, look, y'all, so glad to have you here. I also um, want to give a particular welcome to one of my old seminary professors who's here tonight, Daniel Wong. Give a little wave. 
feels a little bit like I'm preaching with the principal in the room right now, but um, so you guys can pray for me. He taught me Hebrew, um, and Daniel actually has his PhD here from the University of Texas in Semitic languages, so um, go talk to him afterwards. He and his whole family are here, and they are wonderful people and dear friends of um, my family, so glad y'all are here. Welcome. Um, before I dive into this, I want to do one more bit of housekeeping, and that is to really encourage you to consider to, summer, to go to summer conference. It's it's the best thing that Texas REF does. It's at the end of each spring semester, and we pile into a bus out in front of Callaway. We drive overnight. I don't drive. I meet y'all there. But you guys will drive overnight and uh, arrive at the luxurious Laguna Beach Christian Retreat Center. Um, and it's not, it's not luxurious, but the beach is. It's amazing. It's really beautiful, and you're right there on the water. And it is a great way to end your spring semester and begin your summer. It's very restful. It's very relaxing. It's very fun. Um, all kinds of things happen at summer conference. Chrissy Trapp realized that she was in love with me at summer conference. So um, anything can happen, people. I mean, just, just saying. She literally told our RUF campus minister's wife, in, while she was actually kind of tearing up, and she goes, oh, no, I think I like John Trapp. So I don't know if she was falling in love with me, but she like... <laughs> realize that she liked me. <laughs> so I'll take that as a win. Um, we have been going through the book of Exodus this semester. This is actually going to be our last, uh, our last sermon on the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to wrap up with, um, with looking at the God who is with us. And uh, one of the things we said kind of on the onset of this, of this sermon series is that the book of Exodus really reveals to us who God is, what kind of God he is. And tonight I want you to see that God is a God who reveals himself to be a God who is with us. So let's pray and we'll dive into this text that Henry read for us. Father, thanks so much for this time to be together. Uh, We pray and I ask that uh, this time would be profitable for the people who have come. Lord, that can only happen if your spirit applies these words to our heart. We thank you that you've given us your word because you love us. We thank you that it's true. And I pray for people who are here considering that tonight or people who are here who do believe and need to be encouraged. Would you meet us where we all are as individuals? And would you help us to grow closer to you now? And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, this weekend, I'm kind of last minute going to Los Angeles with Chrissy, um, the uh, RUF at UCLA had their speaker back out last minute for their spring conference. So my buddy, who's the campus minister there, called me and asked us to go. So Christy and I are going to be getting on a plane on Friday morning, and uh, we're taking Hank with us, who's our little baby. Uh, He'll be four months old tomorrow. And um, so we're kind of getting a vacation, but we're also taking an infant with us. But uh, it feels like a vacation because we have five kids. But we're taking Hank. And I don't know if you've ever been on a plane when a baby is on the plane. It's kind of hilarious um, and sometimes annoying if the baby's not yours. Um, But we have always been entertained whenever we take our kids on flights because all of our babies are like fairly social creatures. They want to connect with other human beings around them. And a lot of people who are on planes are not interested in connecting with the infants that are sitting next to them. And I'm not kidding. Our kids, when they're on planes, they will literally just death stare somebody until that person looks back at them. 
And then it's, it's almost like they can sense the people who don't want to look at them. And that's just the ones that they keep on looking at the whole time. Just like the grumpy business consultant man who's on his fifth flight of the week, you know, and like they will just stare at him continually. Well, I found out that there's actually scientific data for why babies stare at people. There was a study done at the University of Stanford, uh, Stanford University, back in 2012, and it was research done at the Stanford Vision and Neurodevelopment Lab. And it suggests that there is actually a physical basis for babies staring at people. And what they discovered is that as early as four months old, babies' brains already, they can already process a face at the same level that an adult can. But they can't process like hardly any other object. So what they did, they, they did this study where they, would, they showed adults these different images. And some of them were images of like a television set or an apple or a human being's face. And every time those images popped up, for the adults, the um, temporal lobe in their brain, which is devoted to higher level visual processing, that part of their brain would light up. But for babies, when they flash the same images in front of babies, if it was an object, like a, an apple or a TV, the, um, the kind of lower responding part of their brain, um, which is in my notes, and I don't remember what it's called, but it's for like lower level processing, um, that part of their brain would light up. But if a human face... If a human face came in front of a baby, the exact same brain activity that you would see in an adult would happen to a baby. And what they concluded from this, what this means is that the most important and most recognizable image to a baby is a face. And this is just how we are. That all of us show up searching for a face. And I would go as far as to say that we're all searching for a face that's searching back for us. And no one has to teach babies this. I mean, when our children are, I mean, when Hank was like two, three months old, he, if he saw your face appear in front of him, all of a sudden he would just light up, just, just smile. And we never had to teach him that. He just knows. And here's what I want us to look at tonight. I want us to look at, first, what is it that we really need as human beings? And secondly, how do we get it? And then third, so what? So first, what we really need. Here's the thing. If we're going to appreciate what's going on in this passage, we have to understand what the Bible claims from the very beginning, the very first chapter of the Bible. And this was, at the time this was written, this was a very provocative idea in kind of the religious pantheon of the day. And it's that, Human beings are made in God's image. That every single human life bears the image of God. And the God of the Bible is a God who is triune, which is a big, hard concept to understand. That he is both three persons and one God. He is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit. All equally powerful, eternal, divine, And they are one God in three persons. So here's the thing. God in his essence is unity and diversity. God in his essence is relational. And so what I would suggest to you, one of the things, that means there's a whole lot of applications that we can make with that. And that's kind of almost a whole nother sermon. 
But one of the things that that means for us for tonight is that because we were made, because you were made in the image of a God who is in his essence relational, it means one of the the thing that you were made for is relationships. At your very core being, you were made for relationships. And we see, we see this all throughout our world. Um, in 1989, when um, communism fell in Romania, the orphanages in this country were completely overflowing with children, and they were completely understaffed with workers. And so what was happening in orphanages in Romania in the late 80s is that there were children who were getting all the food they needed. They were getting all of the medical treatment that they were supposed to have. They were living in the kind of hygiene that they were supposed to have. And yet they were sick almost twice the amount of a normal child. In fact, infant mortality was as high as 33% in some of these orphanages. 33% infant mortality. And the reason, the reason that people um, believe who have studied this is because they didn't have a loving bond with someone. There were so many babies in all of these cribs and so few people to take care of them and to actually connect with them that these babies were literally dying of loneliness. In the same way, as we've come to under, as the medical community has come to understand um, loneliness and human interaction, the importance of connection in our lives, it's actually been observed now that the most dangerous thing to your health, the thing that is more likely to make you die before the age of seventy, more likely to make you die before the age of seventy than smoking will, more likely to make you die before the age of seventy than obesity will. What, will, what is most likely to make you die before the age of 70 is loneliness, chronic loneliness. People who suffer from chronic loneliness are 50% more likely to die before the age of 70 than an average person. Here's why I bring up these kind of like heavy and uh, sad examples. What I want you to see is that at your core, you are made for relationships. You are made to connect. In the context of this story, like I said, at the offset in the book of Exodus, God is showing Israel who he is. And what he is showing them, how he is revealing himself, is that he is a God who wants to connect with them. The book of Exodus starts with these people who are crying out for help. And what we see is that there is a God who hears them. He hears them in their distress. Not only that, but he loves them so much that he enters into the story and he uses his power to free them from the slavery that they are in in Egypt. But not only that, he shows up with them as a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. He is physically present with them. He is feeding them day after day after day with bread on the ground called manna. He brings them through into the wilderness. He even, he forgives them for all of the the times that they doubt and complain. 
He gives them water to drink when they're accusing of him, accusing him of wrongdoing. He's incredibly patient with them. He's revealing himself to be this God who wants to relate. And then he gives them, he gives them the Ten Commandments, his law. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And it's really important to see that before he gives them the law, he's already saved them. And that's how, God's, that's how law and grace always work in the Bible, is that God first gives salvation and grace before he gives law. It's really important that we don't, we twist that order around a lot. We think that we've got to start obeying the law and doing that right, and then we get the grace and the relationship with God. And what God reveals in the story of Exodus is that, no, it's, bad, it's, it's the opposite. That first he gives them love and grace, and then he gives them his law because he loves them. Not because he's holding out on them, but because he wants a better way for them to live. Because he's a good father. And good fathers build guidelines and restrictions for their kids because they love them. And God is over and over demonstrating to them that he is for them and that he loves them. And immediately following him giving the Ten Commandments, for the next several chapters in the Bible, from Exodus 25 to 31, God, God tells them that he's going to come and live with them. He is going to be with them. They've been wondering, who is this God? Where is he? They're in Egypt. Where are you, God? Are you going to do anything about this? He's going to do something so much so that he's going to free them and he's going to come live with them. And from Exodus 25 to 31, he gives very specific instructions about how to build this thing called the tabernacle. And that is going to be the place. It's going to be this big tent and it's going to be where he physically dwells on earth with his people. He's going to be so close to them. He's actually going to come live in their midst. And then... What we're looking at, the passage we're looking at, is kind of sandwiched in between Exodus 25 and 31. And then Exodus 35 and 40 is a demonstration of all of them following the instructions that God gives them. So so 25 and 31, he's like, this is how you build this this ark. And this is how you build these rooms and these curtains and this thing. And it's, it's like kind of boring. It's why I didn't read the whole thing, honestly. It's just a lot. It's like if, if any of you have ever been like, I'm going to read through the Bible one day in a year. You know, like I'm going to read a, Bi- like a little bit of the Bible every part, like for a year. This is usually the part where you run out of steam sometimes. But God spills so much ink in the Bible about this. About all the things that are going to need to happen in order for them to have him live in their midst. In fact, there's more about the creation. There's more... There's more words in the Bible about the creation of the tabernacle than there are about the creation of the universe. It's really important to God. And the reason it's so important is because what the tabernacle is showing us is it's it's ultimately showing us what the meaning of life is. It's showing us what you were made for. And it's for God to be with you. But here's what happens in between the instructions of how to build the tabernacle and them actually building the tabernacle is what we looked at last week in Exodus 32, where they begin to worship another God that they've made, this golden calf. And now we find ourselves here in Exodus 33 and God, God is like, okay, here's the deal. I can't tell if you, it seems like maybe you don't really want me. Like you kind of, you made this other God and I'm getting these vibes from you that like maybe you're not into this whole relationship. So I tell you what, I've made promises to you that I was going to give you a promised land that I was going to drive out all of these foreign nations and I'm going to give you 
houses that you didn't build, vineyards that you didn't plant, walls to protect you that you didn't construct. I'm going to give you all of this, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give it to you. I promised you that. I'm going to hold up my, de- my end of the deal. But did you see what he says in verse 3? Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way for your stiff-necked people. Here's what God's saying. Here's the deal. I'll give you all the things that you want. I'll give you all the things that I promised you, but I'm not going to give you me. And here's what I think is interesting about this. Because I think for many 21st century Americans, myself included, a lot of times we would kind of take that deal. Like if God was like, here's the deal. I'll give you the exact grad school you want to get into. The, all the right internships. The, the man or the woman of your dreams. With the two and a half kids of your dreams. In the neighborhood of your dreams. With the cars of your dreams. The vacation homes of your dreams. Two and a half kids. It's like what the average number of people have. Everyone was like looking at you like, what are you talking about? Not like an actual half child. Sorry. That's the average what people... Anyway. Sorry for confusing you. Um, so, a lot of us would look at that be like, you mean you're going to give me all the stuff and not you? It, that's, that sounds tempting. And here's the, the thing is, what that sounds like is it sounds like heaven on earth now. And that's what a lot of us want. We don't want heaven someday later. We want paradise now. And the hard thing, the the thing that I think is tricky about the time that we live in is that we live in a time that is more peaceful than than human human history has ever known. I know it may not feel like that, but like statistically that is true. We live in the the most peaceful time, the most prosperous time, where there's so many things that if you want, they're at your fingertips. Um, there was an article written about this in the Atlantic a couple, uh, two years ago by a guy named Derek Thomas. And uh, he was reflecting on these recent economic studies that showed that even the most ordinary Americans today, compared to people who lived just 100 years ago, if you're an ordinary average American with like a TV in your house, that you live a better life than the wealthiest people did a hundred years ago. Listen, uh, listen to what he says. In 1915, Americans walked everywhere or they took a streetcar if they lived in cities. They lived in three generation homes that they rarely owned. They ate almost as much lard as chicken. Didn't know that. And they spent Friday nights dancing to player pianos. In short, everything was worse except for the commute. I can feel that. I-35. Yep, y'all know what I'm talking about. But here's the thing. There is actually danger in having all of this comfort, all of this wealth, all of this security and peace because we can think that this is the promised land. That if we can get all of the things that this world has to offer now that will be okay. But this isn't the promised land that we're in. We are in a land of death. And that's what, is, that's what Moses essentially says. Like if, we, if we go there without you, it's, it's, that's a land of death. 
I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, he's a he's a swing coach, uh, a golf golf swing coach, and not swing dancing. But they have swing dancing here on Thursday nights in this room. If you want swing dancing lessons, we should all just like invade sometime. Anyway, different story. I was talking to a guy who's a swing golf swing coach, and he was coaching for a pastor. This man who'd been a pastor for like forty years. And he asks him, and this, this golf swing coach is hilarious. He's like very kind of guru-y and like, like I have a terrible hook on my drive and like, I'm like hooking, hooking, hooking. He's like, John, hold this tee in your hand while you swing the golf club. I was like, that's bizarre. Okay. And I hit it. And it was like, perfect. I'm like, you are using black ninja magic right now. Like, get away from me. <laughs> and so he asks this, he asks this pastor of 40 years, who are the most spiritually mature people you know? You know what his answer was? He said the pastor thought for a few seconds and then he, he said confidently, hospice care workers. What an interesting answer. Why would they be the most spiritually mature? Because essentially what he's saying is that every single day, these people whose job it is is to make others comfortable while they die, they are confronted with the reality that we're living in a land of death. That this is not the promised land. That you could have all the things offered to you right now, but if you don't have the one who made it all, you have nothing. What about you? Like, do you want do you want God with you, or do you just want his stuff? Do you treat him, you kind of treat him like Santa? Like the only times maybe you talk to him is when you need something from him or you need, a, you need help on a test. And maybe you like show up on Christmas and I'm going to talk, to, you know, like we have this little exchange. Some of us treat him almost like a paramedic. Like we want him to kind of be far away, but then when like one of our friends gets sick or we're scared about, um, about a parent's health, then we'll call on him, and then we want him to be close. And, but after he's fixed everything, then we want him to leave. Some of us treat him like a judge. Like the only thing he's there for is to kind of forgive us and make sure that we're right and have kind of our get-out-of-hell-free card and then go on his way. And here's the thing. God is, in some way, like all of those. He's not Santa, sorry. But he's... He does give us things, and he wants us to come to him and ask for him. He does help us. He is, he is our great comforter when we're sick and ailing. He is our judge who, if you are in Christ, declares you forgiven. He is all of those things, but he is also so much more. Here's the thing. You need more than just Santa, paramedic, or judge. What we need is the source of all those things. We sing this all the time here. Come thou fount of every blessing. What those words are saying is that every good thing that's in this world has come out of a fountain. Has come from a God who has given us those things. And if we set our heart on those things and miss out on the fountain, you're missing out on it all. 
It would be like if there was like a multi-year drought coming, like you knew a multi-year drought was about to happen and you could choose to either buy a truckload of spring water or go buy land that has a freshwater spring. What would the wise thing be? If you've got a multi-year drought coming, you need the source of the water. You don't need a bunch of little bottles of it. And what you need, what Israel knows that they need is they need the fount of every blessing. Because if they go into the promised land without him, they'll be lost. So how do we get it? How do we get the fount of every blessing? How do we get the father? How do we get his face? Well, in this passage, we see that Moses acts as a mediator between Israel and between God. You see it in verse 11. And he's, he is, Moses is so close to God that it says Moses would go in and he would speak to God face to face like a friend. That Moses, he intimately knows God and has, God tells him that he has his favor. Moses asks him, Lord, you have to, if I've found favor in your sight, will you please come to the promised land with us? And in verse 17, God says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And so what they do is they build the tabernacle because what's going to happen is that God is going to come and be with his people. They won't be lost. But the reality of what scripture teaches us is that Moses, he's not the ultimate mediator. That there is one who came, Jesus, who is, the book of Hebrews tells us, he was a greater Moses. He is the greater Moses. That Moses was pointing us to Jesus. So much so, that the way that God comes and tabernacles with his people ultimately, the way that God is going to come and live among us, In the introductory to the book of John, which is telling us about Jesus's life, John chapter one, it says, and the word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the Greek word there that's used that says the the word came and dwelt among us. It's the exact same word that we use for tabernacle. The word came and tabernacled among us. That God, the way he ultimately comes and dwells with us is he becomes a man. Jesus Christ permanently becomes a man. Do you understand that? He wasn't a man before. He wasn't like us. And in order to save us, he became like what he was not so that we could become like what we are not. Because he loves you. Because God is so committed to responding to the cries of help from his people that he actually takes on flesh and dwells among us. Because he is a true and good father. And so he died not just so that the judge could be appeased for our sins. He did do that. Jesus' death for us, it, it is so that God's wrath could be appeased. 
so that we would be forgiven in his sight. But it's also so that we could not only be forgiven, but loved. So that we could have the face of God smile on us. I think some people here tonight need to hear this. Because you're about to enter into stressful, final projects, final papers, final exam, just blah, time. And it can feel like your security is so unstable. And if God has actually done this through the work of his son coming and living among us and taking on flesh, and he's that committed to you, that he's lived and died for you so that you can be his, you don't have to be afraid. You actually have security offered to you because you have the fount of every blessing. You have the Father's smile. Listen to how Paul explains it in Galatians 4. He says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave like Israel was in Exodus. You're no longer a slave to sin if you're in Christ, if you have faith in him. By grace, you're no longer a slave, Paul says, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Did you know that? That you're not just forgiven, but that you're made an heir. Here's what that means. If, if you don't hear me say anything else tonight, hear this. If you believe in Jesus, if your faith is in him, everything that Jesus has, you have. You're an heir. He's earned that for you. Everything that Jesus has done, righteous and good, you have. Everything that will be given to Jesus, it's offered to you freely. If you would cast your faith on him, Cry out to him in your need. That's how he responds. This is the kind of God we have. A God who is with us. Any people here watch this TV show, This Is Us? Yeah? Okay, okay, good. Okay, guys. Um, I, like, really need Randall and Beth to be okay. I haven't watched the last episode, but it is stressing me out. But um, Randall is this character. He's one of three triplets in the show, This Is Us. And Randall is... He's like the kid who's going to go to the Ivy League school. He gets everything right. He's the hard worker, high achiever. But Randall suffers from occasional bouts of just crippling anxiety and panic attacks. And there's this episode. He's like the, the family. This family just has like this wonderful father. He's just a great dad who loves his kids. And there's this episode where you see young, like little kid Randall, who is, he's scared and he's panicking and he's anxious. And all, all that his father Jack does is he holds his face and he looks straight into his son's eyes and he says, just breathe. Just breathe with me. I'm with you. It's going to be Okay. And here's what you need to know. One of God's favorite words in the Bible is with. He's always telling his people he'll be with them. The Bible begins with God being with Adam and Eve in the garden. 
God is with his people here. He promises to be with them and go into the promised land with them. When Jesus comes, the angels say his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Bible ends with heaven coming to earth and for eternity, God being with us, the source and the fount of every blessing being with us. He is with you so much so that did you hear what Paul said when we read that in Galatians 4, 6 through 7? God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So here's the deal. The place where God dwells now is in you. If you love him, if you have your faith in Christ, the place where God has chosen to tabernacle is in screw ups like me. He comes and he is so Jesus says, he tells his disciples this right before he leaves. And the last thing he says at the Great Commission, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How's he going to do that? He sends his spirit to us and he is with you. So you're never alone. You're never alone. And here's what that means. Because we are God's tabernacle, we get to, if you're a Christian, you get to participate in people knowing who God is because God now dwells inside of you. I'll close with this illustration. A a few years back, um, the San Francisco Chronicle wrote an article about a woman named uh, Laura Wilson Allen. Now, Laura Wilson Allen is not, she's not a powerful person. She doesn't make a lot of money. She is, uh, she's been driving the same um, bus route for the, over the last 20 years for the 45 Muni bus line in San Francisco. But here's the thing with Laura Wilson Allen. She tells all the people who get on her bus that she loves them. If you, if you get on Laura Wilson Allen's bus, you're going to hear, I love you. How are you doing today? Laura Wilson Allen, she, she learns the people's names who are on the bus. There are people who love riding her bus so much so that if they're at their bus stop and another bus shows up and Laura's not driving it, they'll wait for the next bus to come. That's how much they love Laura Wilson Allen. She, there's all kinds of stories about her. She's just kind of this icon in the city of San Francisco. Um, there's stories of her you know, helping old women get their, uh, get their grocery bags off the bus and everyone kind of like running late, but being okay with it because it's Laura and she's helping this person. When a young woman named Tanya was, uh, was lost, she was a runaway, living in San Francisco, brand new, a very vulnerable person at that time. And Laura, uh, Laura gets to the end of her shift, and this girl doesn't really have anywhere to go to get off the bus. And um, she says, she's like, do you, you know, she's kind of asking her about it. She says, tell you what, why don't you just come home with me? And so she brought her home, and she fed her dinner with her family on Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's a horrible personality. And uh, in the article, they're asking her, like, why do you do this? How do you do this? And she says, every morning at 2.30 a.m., before I go and drive my bus, I spend 30 minutes with my Savior, Jesus. She gets face-to-face time with him, with Jesus. And everyone who steps on that bus in San Francisco, they step into a tabernacle place where God dwells because Laura, Laura Wilson Allen is there. She's in the bus. And so Christians, if you're here tonight, here's what I want you to hear me say. 
you get to participate in people coming to know about who God is, and people are going to know that by watching how you live. And that, that's actually, that's really exciting. That's also something that we need to take seriously. So when your friends see you living a certain way, maybe on the weekend, but claiming something else on Sunday or on Wednesday night at RUF, it can be really confusing to them. Because they're looking for God tabernacling in you. I, this is not me, I'm not telling you this to shame you and like, t- like tisk tisk. I'm asking you and, maybe, and, and suggesting that perhaps one of the reasons that God has given us his law, it's because he loves us and it's because he loves your friends. And so the reason that we're obedient to God, it's not because we're just trying to earn his love. We already have it. But one of the reasons that we obey him and that we pursue holiness is actually so that people can see God in us. So that they'll rub up against it and want to know more about who this God of grace is. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you'll keep coming. And what I hold out to you is a God who is so committed to being with you that unlike any other God in the pantheon of any other religion, he is so committed to being with you, he became a man for you. And all he holds out to you is his inheritance. And he offers it to you because he's gracious. And the only way you can get it is just by faith. He's that good. So I hope you'll consider that if he really is. Is he really that good? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time to be together. And I pray that you would help us to believe, um, even in our unbelief. Would you help us, Father? Help us to see that you are so committed to loving us, that you became a man, Lord Jesus, and that you dwelt among us. And I pray that you would help us to go out and to dwell among our neighbors, our friends, to love them, uh, because we have first been loved by you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.